The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Oh, happy Thursday, everyone. You're watching Scorebox with the mighty Karen Cho, the magnificent Jeff Cutmore and me. Right, let's move on. The headlines. The Nasdaq hits a fresh record high whilst the Dow and S&P snap a two-day win streak as inflation fears keep investors on edge, despite the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying price pressures, yes, you've heard it, will retreat by the year end. The US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the German Chancellor Angela Merkel discussing China containment strategies as Blinken kicks off his European tour in Berlin, where he says, quote, Washington has no better friend. The U.S. is reportedly poised to ban solar products imported from China's Xinjiang province over alleged human rights abuses in the region. Hong Kong's pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily publishes its last edition, closing its doors after its assets are frozen and amid a series of staff arrests under the city's controversial national security law. Viacom, CBS and Roku shares rise on a Wall Street Journal report that our parent company Comcast is considering a tie-up or a takeover, but the CEO of the business, Brian Roberts, has told CNBC that's, quote, pure speculation. I know we've got a guest waiting and I know I've got a whole load of reads, but I'm just checking um, what Anthony Blinken said in May about the special relationship, because apparently he's just said that Germany is no better friend. But he also said the special relationship is enduring, effective and dynamic and close to the hearts of Americans. Is he playing us all? No, I'm sure he's not, but uh, we're all very special anyway. Good. Right. OK. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has waved off concerns of higher price pressures and that they're here to stay, telling lawmakers she expects inflation to be near 2% by the end of this year. Yellen blamed the recent spike on supply shortages as restrictions ease, adding that the economy has been on a bumpy path in recent months. Meanwhile, two Fed officials have warned that the inflation surge could last longer than initially thought. That's interesting. So let's get this right. The Treasury Secretary backs down on previously more hawkish comments, but the Fed, which has been dovish, is getting slightly more hawkish. Confused? You should be. Right. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic told NPR that it could continue for six to nine months, adding that he expects rates will need to rise in late 2022. Hang on. This is news, guys. We thought 2024 was the first rate hike. Now then one got a little bit concerned about 2023 as 13 out of 18 of the Fed members thought that could be the case on the dot plot. Now you've got Raphael Bostic saying they need to rise potentially in late 2022. Okay. Uh, Fed Governor Michelle Bowman concurred with Bostic, telling a conference that it could take some time for price pressures to ease. The Fed Chair Jerome Powell has repeatedly said a rise in inflation will prove to be transitory. Do they know? Do they really know? Maybe they do. Here's the dollar index anyway. 0.02 of 1% higher. 91.818. 
I don't like it when the director says big fat wide. I think he's talking about me, but it might be the shot. Good morning, Carol. <laughs> no, if it's not me. Thanks very much, Steve. I want to take you to the market action. We keep on talking about bond markets and what the inflation scenario looks like. And the reality is uh, stocks are trapped in a range. Investors are waiting it up for a bit more direction on that bond market. Uh, the steepening of the yield curve that then translated to a flattening of the yield curve as we had more of those dovish messages from the Fed. But still a time frame around potential rate hikes in 2023. And the market, as you mentioned, may be aware, has been oscillating from these reflation trades to the technology stocks. Uh, yesterday was a day of pullback for the Dow, two tenths down. So it wasn't exactly a, a stand-up moment for the reflation trade for investors to get back on board. Instead, technology was where some of the action was. Uh, Tesla, one of the big moving stocks for the markets in the consumer discretionary space. And as you think about big tech too, don't forget we've got a, a lot of regulation being debated on the Hill. Lawmakers considering what antitrust changes should be written into legislation. This is how the sector performed on the back of what also was a, a decent session a day earlier. Not exactly uh, a strong one for Apple, down two tenths. Give back for Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon as well. Some bright spots remain around those social media companies. Facebook and Twitter at this stage. And here's a glimpse at uh, Tesla and the action we witnessed, more than 5% to the upside. A look at the Asian markets picking up on some of these trends. Uh, we've got uh, Japanese stocks uh, trading weaker, fractionally weaker. Hong Kong, a bright spot of green that's uh, up by just over a tenth of a percent. So weakness settling in for China and also for Australia. A look at the metals uh, industry and uh, what we've got. Gold, uh, it's a retreat. We're down two tenths of a percent. There'd been a little bit of glimmer of hope around some of those more dovish messages from the Fed, but some of that seems to have faded. Investors still looking at that yield scenario that is coming in the next couple of years, and it seems to have just stolen some of the appeal from bullion. Silver trades off a, a tad too, and copper pulling back. Uh, it's been one of the, the hot trades, but investors not eyeing some of the moves by the Chinese to stamp down on speculation around the metal. And you can see 1% off for 9382, the price we're looking at. Jeff. Karen, thank you very much indeed for that. Well, let's see if we can make some sense of all this. Eust uh, van Leenders joins us, senior investment strategist at Kempen Capital Management. Uh, used a couple of new pieces of information. Uh, we did get this diversion from the Powell line on inflation from both Kaplan and Bostick, as Steve has pointed out. We also got some new US May home sales data that fell 5.9% and April was revised lower. If you bolt all this new information into your equity model. What does that now tell you about the attractiveness of U.S. stocks? Well, I think uh, we we are sort of moving from a very favorable climate for for equities being low inflation and very strong growth. And we're now moving into a climate where the growth is still strong. It's it's probably peaking uh, uh this quarter, next quarter, uh, but still after that's very strong, but also a bit uh, higher inflation. And we don't know whether that is that inflation is transitory or more or more sustained. Uh, the base effects will drop out, so inflation will come down, but there, there are also a lot of signs that inflation will be stronger. So that's a less favorable uh, uh, climate for equities. I think um, uh, overall, sort of global equities, it's still positive because you have that growth, you have that 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 uh, earnings revisions, which are still uh, f- uh, f- uh, positive. But I think U.S. is a bit more vulnerable 
um, because this is where the inflation and the interest rates risks are. And in general, uh, U.S. equities are more vulnerable, more sensitive to, to rising yields anyway. The valuations are higher. You have a high component of growth stocks. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a, a, a less a less favorable climate for, for equities and particularly U.S. equities. Yeah, interesting. Having read your notes, I know that you're less excited about the US than you are about Europe at the moment. Obviously, the PMI data was incredibly strong yesterday across the field, indicating the Eurozone at something like a 15-year high in terms of uh, the growth outlook. Um, What apart from the underlying PMI macro data makes you think that Europe is where you're going to make the best return? Well, I think um, the the reopening is happening in Europe as we speak. So we get that that opening push to the economy. Um, So therefore, growth in in Europe is set to accelerate more than in the US. Uh, And when you look at, at earnings expectations, We've seen the upward revisions more in the U.S. and still still happening in Europe. So I think there's more p- potential for those earnings still still to be revised higher. Uh, you have somewhat lower valuations in Europe. Uh, and again, if you go to a climate where um, uh, you get a bit more inflation and yields trending higher, uh, that's also favorable for Europe. It's the value component of Europe. It's the large uh, exposure to financials in Europe. So if they start to move, uh, that's all favorable for Europe stock, European stocks relatively. So, so growth, growth itself is not our worry. Growth will be strong. All the indicators, uh, PMI, real data, orders data, consumption will be coming, etc. So it's it's more um, the inflation uh, and 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 interest rate risks. Uh, I think that's the main risk for equities in general, and then US in particular. Can I ask you about the German Bund? We've seen a lot of movement so far this year and getting us within a touching range of a break-even of zero. What's going to be the catalyst to move it higher from here? Do you think it is central bank policy, the way the ECB communicates from here? Could it be that US 10-year yield dragged up with its peers if we finally do see some movement back in the US Treasury market? Will that be the catalyst or is it just around this reopening theme in Germany, how well manufacturers are doing and also the services sector? You know, what the positive catalyst do you think for the German Bund? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's uh, uh, definitely tied to, to the German European economy because it's interesting because we know there's a lot of slack still in the European economy, so you wouldn't expect that inflation. But still, when you look at those PMIs and the, and the price components in these PMIs, a lot of companies are telling us that both input and output prices are rising quickly. So that has an impact on, on yields. The, the, the central bank policy, I mean, the ECB uh, told us uh, uh, two weeks ago um, that they will will keep their their uh, asset purchases at that significantly higher level than in the first quarter. So they are pushing against this. Um, so much so much they can do. And um, uh, the, the difficulty, but with the ECB is that they um, yeah made this sort of sort of flexible approach. So they have to reconfirm it every time. But I think it's the domestic economy. Uh, that's pushing yields higher, and then the U.S. of course also. Although when you look at the ten-year yields in the U.S., it's been it's been remarkably flat over the past uh, uh, yeah almost two months now. So it's 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 just yeah that um, that possibility of also a bit price increases in in Germany itself.
Used to, there's a, a seemingly a very calm approach to the European bond market at this stage, which we're not typically used to. It feels as though it's often somewhat depressed because of ECB policy, but underlying that, a uh, little bit of political risk that can skew some of the individual country levels. When do you think that returns? We've got a German election later on this year. Already we're hearing tones about what sort of fiscal discipline should remain on the back of this crisis. We've got an election coming in, in France next year, by no means clear at this stage. And, uh, of course, uh, the populace forever active in Italy as Mario Draghi tries to roll out that EU recovery fund. So when do you think political risk comes back into the equation for European bond markets? Well, I think the, 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 big, the big political risk uh, obviously would be uh, if, if some populist party with an sort of a euro sentiment uh, gained traction in any polls or elections. But even in France, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen is, is now doesn't seem to want to leave the euro uh, so and that's the big risk and that that risk is not 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 apparent in Italy it's not in uh, it's not in France in general what you see that governments are getting more active and more stimulative uh, that that could have an upward pressure on bond yields although even in the US where uh, we know that that Joe Biden wants to release very big fiscal packages the pressure is the pressure is limited um, it depends a bit on on those on those programs if it's more geared to government investment and and tied to reforms it could be even even uh, even positive for yields because uh, you get a more efficient economy um, but, but yeah the, the political the big political risk of a sort of indication of a eurozone breakup i don't see those and those elections yeah at the margin they could push it higher but um um yeah i think that's that's pretty marginal you've said really lots of interesting things let me drill down on one of them um look despite being a proud european i i think that we've got to be very careful about looking at european valuations compared with u.s valuations the historic discount of europe has been there for a very, very long time and remains so as well. Historically, US equities, for instance, trade on a book to uh, price to book around about 50% higher than we get in Europe as well. Now, they're more flexible, the companies, the actual companies themselves are more oriented to growth. There's more flexibility in the labor market. It's a deeper pool of liquidity, different kind of investors. I think we've got to be really careful when we say that Europe can catch up in terms of valuations to the US because it hasn't happened historically, sir. No, that, that's true, and and it's also definitely a, 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 a due to a sector composition, uh, uh, more gears towards tech in uh, in the U.S. and more gears to uh, to uh, uh, value value companies, uh, financial companies in Europe. So so that is true, and and especially when you look at sort of the short term allocation, uh, I wouldn't hang that up all on uh, on those on those valuations. I think it, the, the 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 more significant. Um, uh, arguments for Europe is the sort of the stage of the cycle where we're in, the, the the possibility of upward revisions, of upward surprises in that sense, uh, and again the whole climate uh, from low inflation, a lot of growth uh, to a bit more higher inflation and a bit more uh, a bit more risk of higher yields uh, is, are probably the main arguments. So. Um, yeah, that, that valuation is, is is maybe part of the puzzle, but not on not on the short term. I, uh, I think we all agree that uh, that that equities in general don't move short term on on valuations. Good man. Okay, another thing that we were talking about earlier, and you're with Jeff and Karen, and I, I've got to come back to you on this one as well. Um, outcomes, not outlook, seems to be the mantra now from Jay Powell and Co. as well. 
are they saying, though, that actually the previous model of looking at outlook, which put them ahead of the curve, is now completely wrong and has been wrong for decades and centuries? Or is there something very unique about this situation we're in now where it should be about outcomes rather than outlook from the Fed? Yeah, I think they've they've made this change for a while. And since you say we 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 used to be concerned when central banks were behind the curve, and that's that's not the case at all anymore. So, um, uh, and I think that concern was was coming into the market a little bit. And now with the latest meeting, uh, um, well, it's clear that there's a, there's there's no consensus within the FOMC range of of, uh, of expectations of those members uh, but we see that they're they're moving a bit back again okay we know that this growth that that growth is strong we know that the economy has recovered we know that the labor market will recover so we have to look ahead and we're moving in uh, those those uh, those um, uh, rate hikes a, a little bit so um, I, I I wonder if a central bank will 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 ever be only looking at the current data. Obviously, the current data is very important, uh, but every central bank knows that there's a, a time lag between uh, when they act and when it goes into economy, into the economy. So there's always a bit of outlook. Um, but again, from, from concern of being behind the curve, I think that was back a little bit in the market, and, and um, yeah, some of those uh, FOMC members are responding to that. Uh, good to have you with us, Eust. Thanks for joining us this morning on the program. Eust uh, van Leenders coming to us from Kempen Capital Management. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break. Still to come on the program this morning, thousands gather to support Hong Kong pro-democracy paper Apple Daily on its last day of circulation. We'll bring you the latest on its forced closure after the break. More on the latest comments from Fed officials and what they could mean for the Fed's rate path, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. The United States is reportedly set to ban the import of materials used for solar panels from a Chinese company over alleged human rights abuses. Let's get to Sam, who's got more on this story. Nice to see you, Sam. Nice to see you too, Steve. Good morning to you. So this company is called Holshine Silicon Industry Co. And we have seen shares in this company getting absolutely hammered today over in Shanghai off the back of this news, down around 10% at the lunch break, which we've just come out of. What this company does, as you can probably get guess from the name, it makes materials, silicon materials, which actually goes into solar panels. And what the US is reportedly alleging is that this material may perhaps be made 
made with forced labour. And so they are saying that they would ban the imports of this material from this company specifically uh, that goes into these solar panels unless uh, Holstein, as you can see there, uh, does actually prove that this isn't being made uh, by forced labour. Now, this reportedly only applies to material from Holstein, as I said, and won't uh, impact the majority of US imports of polysilicon, apparently. Uh, But of course, the US has already banned the imports of things like tomatoes and cotton from Xinjiang. And so this really does signal that Biden is perhaps uh, casting the net a lot wider here uh, as he cracks down on this alleged forced labour in Xinjiang. It's not clear what the impact uh, will be, but certainly a big chunk uh, of these products do come from Xinjiang. One estimate I've seen uh, is around uh, 45%. But while, uh, as you can see there, those shares in uh, Holstein are getting hammered today, uh, the industry isn't having uh, too much of a bad day itself. We are seeing some significant gains uh, in terms of the solar sector, broadly speaking. Uh, But this comes on top of the US actually adding five more Chinese companies to its uh, so-called economic trade blacklist over alleged human rights abuses uh, of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, including forced labour. And these do include uh, some of these companies that are in the business uh, of polysilicon, which does go into solar panels. And this also includes Holshine. So not having a good day uh, at all. What this listing does is restrict uh, US exports uh, to these firms. And so these uh, exporters will actually have to get a license to sell or supply to these companies. And it's important to point out that these are rarely granted uh, under this list. It's not clear, as I say, what impact this will have. But there has been some suggestion uh, that really this is largely uh, symbolic. At best, uh, these companies will have to make sure they comply uh, with these rules. But of course, this does uh, add to this uh, growing uh, criticism of China over alleged human rights abuses uh, over in Xinjiang and potentially the economic fallout from all of this uh, now. And certainly uh, the timing is noteworthy and significant given that we have seen this UN Human Rights Council meeting uh, playing out at the moment, which has really proven to be a bit of a battlefield for these uh, geopolitical bickerings, you could call it. They've now uh, apparently moved on to subjects like uh, housing and migration and Beijing apparently took that opportunity uh, yesterday to uh, uh, further respond to these uh, alleged human rights abuses over in Xinjiang. Actually, Uh, chucking it back at a number of Western countries, including uh, the UK, the US, Australia and Canada, uh, attacking them over their own track records. And uh, when it comes to things like migrants and refugees, China was said to have actually specifically criticised the poor conditions of things like detention centres and also uh, on the Mexico border. But uh, it really is no coincidence that Beijing has named these countries, particularly given they were one of the 40 nations that is now putting pressure on Beijing to allow the UN access to this region. Now, Jeff, back to you. Sam, terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that. And we'll stay in that part of the world here. Hong Kong's pro-democracy newspaper, the Apple Daily, has published its final edition today, ending 26 years of circulation. The closure comes after Jimmy Lai and other staff were arrested under Beijing's new national security law and its assets were frozen. Emily has this report from Hong Kong. Apple Daily printed one million copies of its final edition, a more than tenfold increase than its daily normal circulation. Now, uh, this is the paper here, and in today's headlines, Gong Yan Yu Zhong Tong Beat. What that means is a sorrowful Hong Kong people in the rain. Down here, Ngo Dei Chang Ping Guo. 
We support Apple Daily. Now, in this picture here, you can see a man's arm holding up a phone. Uh, the lights were on on the uh, smartphone and a whole group of them. The, the perspective is uh, from the next digital offices looking out onto the street. So all the supporters down here are coming to support Next Digital. And uh, the staff members are holding their mobile phones with the light, waving it around in support or in acknowledgement of those people that have come to support them. The newspaper's shuttering comes earlier than expected after five Apple Daily executives were arrested last Thursday for alleged national security offenses and company funds being frozen. The company was meant to hold a board meeting on Friday to decide about its future. Then there was another arrest of one of its lead journalists yesterday. And by the afternoon, Apple Daily announced it would stop publishing after today's edition. Newspaper management said this was because of manpower and to protect staff. We have not seen any response from the government since the closure of the paper, but earlier in the week, Chief Executive Carrie Lam, in response to questions about the arrests of Apple Daily staff, said, don't try to underplay the significance of breaching the national security law and don't try to beautify these acts of endangering national security. Don't try to accuse the Hong Kong authorities for using the national security law as a tool to suppress the media or to stifle the freedom of expression. The Hong Kong Journalists Association, along with seven media organizations, introduced a black dress code today as a demonstration of unity. We cannot take to the streets to express our dissatisfaction, they say, as we are bound by the group gathering ban, but it won't keep us silent. Here is today's final edition of the newspaper, and it is flying off the newsstands. I'm Emily Tan here in Hong Kong. Emily, thank you for that. Well, the closure of uh, Apple Daily has sparked international condemnation from political leaders and activist organizations. The UK Foreign Minister Dominic Raab called the move a, quote, chilling blow to the freedom of expression in Hong Kong. I will just say, I remember uh, being in Hong Kong when Apple Daily was launched and when it arrived on the newsstands, it really shook up what was quite a conservative and traditional print media segment in Hong Kong uh, with its sort of combination of gossip, tittle-tattle and salacious focus on TV starlets. It brought something new and not always welcomed, uh, I think, to the newsstands, but it has become and it did become part of standard fare and I guess any um, print uh, material like it uh, should exist. There is space for such a publication uh, in any vibrant economy. I will just make a point. There are a lot of uh, professionals in Hong Kong and the business community who will just look at this as, oh, well, never mind. Let's get on with business as usual. But I will just point out to you, there is something else going on in Hong Kong at the moment that you do need to take note of if you have a business there or you intend to run a business there. And that involves the accounting profession at the moment. And the fact that the financial secretary basically sent out a blog post saying, we're going to shift the way the accounting industry has had independent oversight in Hong Kong of companies for the last 50 years. And we're going to shift that oversight to the FRC, which is a quasi-governmental organization and regulator. That could have very significant implications for the way companies are overseen and audited and it represents just one more step on in this ongoing journey 
of taking broad control of Hong Kong society and Hong Kong business. So while the Apple Daily story, you may just be able to brush off and say, well, it's a vendetta against Jimmy Lai. There are other things going on that you do need to take note of, particularly if you have money or business at stake in the territory, guys. It's wrapped up in that broader idea of freedoms, isn't it? And what uh, the territory looks like now. I dare say on the back of the closure of uh, Apple Daily that journalists will be somewhat cautious at this point, wondering what that uh, invisible line is that they can cross or not cross at this point. What can they say? I mean, it was uh, touched on by the chief executive, Carrie Lam, this week, that criticism of the government is allowed. That is not something that they're trying to, to stamp out. But as a journalist, if you're based in the territory and you're covering government affairs, just how aggressive would you be prepared to go at this point? Uh, and I think that's the test that's going to come in days and weeks from here. Uh, you know, and I also just point out my own experience having uh, being a journalist in Hong Kong before. You go to a press conference, there was a bank, you turn up for earnings and you're not actually there to ask questions. You're given a, a feed, it's translated, and you take reports and then you wander out. I mean, you talk about authentic individual voices and the ability to report. A lot of that, uh, I think, was challenging from the start anyway. It's just gotten even harder. Um, absolutely. Oh, you guys are the experts. You've, you've both worked in the region. But I would only just add that this isn't just about Hong Kong for the international community at the moment. Uh, you know, the Hong, Hong Kong democracy and the erosion of that is stunningly serious. But then you can add in any number of pointers you want, whether you're talking about Taiwan, whether you're talking about the Uyghurs, whether you're talking about the origins of COVID-19, whether you're talking about vaccine diplomacy in Belt and Road, whether you're talking about the South China Seas, there are so many flashpoints for the international community. I just don't see how there can be any form of immediacy on a rapprochement, especially uh, given the fact that we've just seen the US president trying to build up international coalitions against potentially uh, foes or potential foes across the Pacific and, of course, in Russia as well. So I just don't see how things on an international basis calm down and get easier anytime soon. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.